Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard the TV Pilots License Flight Number 8 with service to New York City's hottest new restaurant, Nolita. We ask that you please fasten your headphones at this time, secure your podcasting device, and remember, if you did not purchase a separate ticket for your Chile and Seabass, they are not allowed to take a seat and must be stored in the seat in front of you. <laughs> Welcome to the TV Pilots License. My name is Jeff Kervis, joined by my co-pilots, Max Singer, as well as Rich Inman. How are you boys hey, doing today? Hey. <laughs> Oh my god! Every time I still I, I haven't been able to make it through a single one of your intros without laughing on the recording. I am hungry to dive into today's episode. Oh, oh god, no! All no, right, no, no, we're done. I'm all so right, sorry. I'm so shortest sorry. episode of all time. Um, <laughs> well, for those who are listening and not sure what Nolita is, we are doing the early two thousands limited run series, and that's putting it kindly, Kitchen Confidential based off of Anthony Bourdain's book. Um, but when it comes to the world of food and kitchens, um, while we enjoy a really nice airplane meal, usually cooked in a microwave, uh, this may be a voyage that is unfamiliar to us, an airspace that we really need to have help being navigated around. So we have invited our first guest pilot. Our guest pilot today is an up-and-coming star in the world of food, media, and entertainment. She is the host of the web series Dead Dad's Kitchen and the podcast Bites of History. Please make sure to press your call button when welcoming Irene Walton. Yeah, Irene. I am so fatal for these intro. You are quite the writer with your sexy little (laughs) intro voice. I love this. Thank you so much. I feel so fucking accomplished for the first time in my life. Um, well, thank you so much. That was such a beautiful introduction. Thank you guys for having me. I'm honored to be your first guest. Oh my goodness, guest pilot. Um, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I'm a little mad you made me watch the show, but I'm excited. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, that's I was going to say, that's what I was the expecting. welcome was the last compliment we're getting from my room. I already have a grudge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Irene, I, I wish we had you here under better circumstances. Uh, but before we dive in uh, too much to uh, Kitchen Confidential, we'd love our audience to learn a little bit more about you and what you're doing outside of, uh, you know, watching a early 2000s <laughs> show starring Bradley Cooper. Oh my gosh. I, I To be fair, I watch a lot of early 2000s television not starring Bradley Cooper, so that's a big part of my life. But um, yeah, you did such a beautiful job of introducing me. I created and host my own cooking show called Dead Dad's Kitchen, where I make all my dead dad's old recipes and kind of like introduce people to cooking through a lens that might not be so like upper echelon and scary to dive into. Oh, cool. And my podcast, Bites of History, is it's like a really short form podcast. So it's only like 15, 17 minutes each episode where I talk about just like food history and how we got Hershey's chocolate and how pizza came to America and just like little things like that. Cause I love old shit and I love food. So I have to say I, prior to us filming, I did see your thing on the uh, Mr. Hershey and I was transported back in time to when I was in the second grade and did a report on Mr. Hershey. So he was the only person I did reports on. (laughs) <laughs> it was crazy i have no idea why i was i like wasn't from pennsylvania like 
but I did every report on him. That's so funny you say that, Jeff. Thank you for listening. Let's transition from such a historical figure into <laughs> such a historical TV show known wow. as Kitchen wow. Confidential. Um, you know, Rich, when we do these shows, you tend to have a question that is on your mind. Yeah. Um, I would love to just, you know, let you go at it. Oh my god, of course. Uh, so, you know, this is more of an open-ended question for everybody. Uh, this one's less angry. The last few episodes have been, why are you making me watch this? Or, or what on earth could possibly be your connection to the show? Yeah, I took a lot of flack at the Alpha episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big rip on Max segment. Um, you know, my thought watching this episode, and I think this is pretty timely based on the shows that have come out this summer, but is this the original The Bear and and did this walk so the bear could run uh, 20, or 15 years later? Rich, I'm so glad you asked this. So <laughs> when I when I watched this show, I said literally to myself, this is a generic version of the BBC limited run series Whites, which I highly recommend to everyone. It also only ran for six episodes, but that was, it was so good. And it was like, it went around the entire concept of like a guy, a chef trying to get his Michelin star. It I love was a show wonderful. Where you can like go through the entirety of it in a long lunch break. Yeah. Most no. shows on BBC could also just be called Whites. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's Great British Bake Off. Oh my gosh. Um, but as far as it being so Bear could run, I, I I think the early 2000s were such an interesting time for food as a whole. Like, And we're sort of coming back to that connection of Americans love food. We love talking about it. We love experiencing it. We love even our horror shows somehow diving into a little bit about food. We're going to talk about Hannibal during this podcast i oh, will God. make sure of it um but this is one of those things where yeah i definitely think there had to be some form of failures or prototypes before we could get the bear at the end of the day both kitchen confidential and the bear are similar in that they are these redemption arc stories they are very similar in a lot of ways uh, but it also just goes to show how far the standard for what makes fine dining has come in the last like 17 years or so, seeing how simple some of these dishes on this show look compared to the intricacies and marvels of the bear. Um, the bear also has the benefit of having like a really touted kitchen supervisor on set with them, whereas I do not think this show did at Fox. <laughs> I don't know if anybody had ever cooked anything that worked on the set of Kitchen Confidential, honestly. I think you bring up a really good point of like, in the 2000s, it was a different world of food. Like now food is its own whole industry beyond food. And whereas like, I granted I was, you know, a kid more or less, but like, I don't think people really started caring about the like level of their food up until the early 2000s. So I feel like this probably was one of the first shows where people were like, oh yeah, I do kind of want to go to that like cool new restaurant that opened. And like when you see a show like this that comes out, you're like, oh, I kind of get like mm -hmm. a peek into the into the like back house, even though it's not a legitimate peek whatsoever. Yeah. But it definitely, I'm sure, was interesting to people 
in 2005. Early 2000s primetime food, though, I think is still very personality driven, less so than food driven. Uh, I think back to probably all of our folks watching Emerald Live oh, yeah. on the couch together. It's like, I don't think it really matters what Emerald made. You're just watching Emerald. You're watching this larger than life, boisterous, loud personality entertain you. And I think that's still what food is. You wanted to see a guy in a white coat putting on this show for you. And you were going to eat up whatever it was because you cared about them more than the dish itself. I was actually in preparation for this episode. Uh, I uh, visited the Culinary Institute of America uh, a couple days ago. Um, <laughs> completely unrelated. Uh, I completely Wait, really? for- yeah. I forgot that we were doing this this show when I booked <laughs> the trip, <laughs> uh, which I probably should have asked more questions about. But they can, you know, now. Like, did you ever see Kitchen Confidential? Sorry, Bradley. <laughs> you didn't need to ask any questions. Clearly, the people on this show did not. <laughs> <laughs> They, so they did, um, you know, they were, we were talking about like, there's like a brand new wing that's been dedicated to Anthony Bourdain because he's a former student and everything. Um, and the, my friends that were there were actually, uh, shout out uh, Chelsea and Tony, uh, friends of the pod. Um, <laughs> they uh, told me that they were, um, you know, they had some like really famous chefs come by and like speak on uh, for the memorial and everything. But they said they could also track the enrollment of CIA based on how popular there is a food thing in the media. And they're both like very worried at how many people are going to enroll because of the bear. And I know that after kitchen confidential, I'm positive. There are a ton of people who signed up to, to be chefs or to learn how to be a chef at this, at the, at the school. That's amazing. What a, what a great story. I, I mean, rich after our previous couple of episodes, I thought you were going to say, what's the worst place you've ever eaten? And I was fully prepared for it. Or have you ever found a thumb in your food? Um, Uh, Jeff, it sounds like you want to just put that out there anyways. uh, We can talk about that in a little bit. But uh, Max, before we get too deep into this podcast, for folks who might be joining us for the first time to maybe listen to us or listen to Irene, what is this podcast all about? If this is your first time flying aboard the TV Pilot's License, we are a podcast that analyzes and reviews the pilot episodes of some of the most famous, or in this case, infamous, uh, episodes of TV throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. (laughs) Uh, We figure out if these shows we made today, whether or not we can keep watching them, and what works, what doesn't. We hope you have a good time with us. Yeah, we decided only the 20th and the 21st, not the 19th century of television. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Um, I hate you. Why not? There's some great stuff. <laughs> um, so when the train was coming towards you. <laughs> now let's talk a little bit about the synopsis of Kitchen Confidential. A bad boy chef runs wild in his New York City eatery. A bat. It's just that three times through, and I pulled oh, this from it. IMDb. So I'm really impressed. Um, you, you know, I was like, Jeff, you could take it back. <laughs> you know, Max, can you tell us a little bit more about a bad boy chef runs wild in his New York City? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so as you mentioned up top, Jeff, this show is inspired by and based on Anthony Bourdain's memoir, Kitchen Confidential, Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly, which was released in 2000. Uh, This book immediately propels to the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. It's part culinary memoir and part a sort of deep dive into high-end restaurant kitchens and some of their shady practices. From its time on the New York Times bestsellers list, uh, Bourdain becomes this 
massive food media star almost overnight. He's being compared to people like Hunter S. Thompson and Jack Kerouac when it comes to food writing. Uh, we always joke about like the trope of like who's going to write the next great American novel. And to a lot of people, this was Anthony Bourdain doing just that. Obviously, such a big personality and such a, a dive into this industry creates a little bit of a media frenzy to get the rights to the memoir. And funny enough, this was not the first project based on Kitchen Confidential. Uh, originally, the rights to this memoir were owned by David Fincher, who planned on making this his follow-up film to Panic Room, with uh, Brad Pitt attached to the Anthony Bourdain role and Benicio Del Toro in talks for a major supporting part. Uh, unfortunately, this film uh, seared, turned out to be all sizzle, no steak, and <laughs> fell apart soon yeah, after God with Bourdain yeah. wanting to take a long absence after finishing Panic Room. Uh, so in that time, the rights became acquired by producer, creator, extraordinaire Darren Starr, who you may know from works like Beverly Hills 90210, Melrose Place, and at this time had just finished Sex and the City. So this is supposed to be Starr's next big comedy. This is supposed to be big budget, sexy New York TV in the wake of Sex and the City. Um, but for every Beverly Hills, 90210, and Sex and the City, uh, Darren Starr also had shows in this time like Central Park West, Gross Point, The Street, which is spelled with a dollar sign instead of an S, and Mismatch. Nope, nope hate that a lot. The only show that can do that is Arliss. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other co-creator on this is a writer-producer by the name of David Hemmingson. Uh, you may be familiar with him as a writer and producer on NBC's Jesse, as well as the executive producer and writer on Just Shoot Me. Uh, sure so he'll be the one writing this pilot episode with Darren Starr directing. And that takes us to our premiere on September 19th, 2005. Oh, my God. Get out of here with this research. I know. <laughs> you guys are crushing this. We have dug so deeply into IMDb. We did so much more research than the cast of Kitchen Confidential ever did. <laughs> Truly. And the thing is, everything we're saying up top says that this is supposed to be a hit for Fox. We'll get into the cast a little bit later on, but this is this is a stacked production the people who are yeah. involved are big names uh, a lot of this cast is coming off of really big runs of shows we'll talk about that a little bit later on but expectations are really high for kitchen confidential uh bradley cooper what happened well yeah. i don't know what happened to bradley cooper but i don't think we'll ever see him again after 2005 i i wish <laughs> i wish the kid from wet hot american summer well <laughs> yeah i i wish the villain from wedding crashers the best of luck um oh, oh my god he's crab cakes in football yes he is holy yeah. shit and he's hot in everything he does it's true <laughs> this was the only truly the only time where i was like bradley like this is a little <laughs> like what's going on babe so i have to ask for everyone i recently was doing trivia and found out that bradley cooper is the most recent person to be nominated for three oscars in a row um now with that being said do you think after watching this pilot that would ever have been a possibility for this man not with this writing no. <laughs> Here's, that's the thing i don't think bradley was terrible in it but it was just such, I maybe I'm so curious if you guys feel this way about it. It felt like it was like three different styles of show all together at once. Like 
it certain scenes I was like, this is very Sex in the City vibes, mm-hmm. and then this other scenes I was like, is this fucking serving the movie from like two thousand three? Who oh the God. fucking kid is also in it? Yeah, the yeah, this movie was just or the show was begging to be on a cable. Mm-hmm. channel and not a network i think it's definitely a little held back by the limitations of being totally. on fox well, well let's talk about that a little bit because let's just even go to the opening of the show right we have this like amazing Ooh, ooh is it time for a little amuse jeff are, are we uh, a, are little, we a, little pallet, a little pallet warm up yeah, a little we... pallet warm up for the main course a little air moose oh. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> so we we uh go into something that you know we've had small bits of this of narration to start a show um and we get the narration of bradley cooper's character jack bourdain um why it could not be (laughs) anthony i have millions of questions about but we're not going to talk about that right now um and jack says in nice quotes from the age of eight i knew exactly what i wanted to do um within 10 seconds of that he is doing coke in a kitchen surrounded by women and I don't think any eight-year-old has that in their imagination. He's not just doing coke in a kitchen. He's doing a line of blow through a piece of penne pasta. Which <laughs> is quite a way to do that. Yeah, I've never even thought about that before this. Uh, before I watched this pilot. I, I, what would be innovative. the goofiest noodle to do cocaine <laughs> Oh my god, a few silly bucatini. Oh <laughs> my god. like a crazy straw. For sure. Meanwhile, Bradley Cooper doing an ambiguous regional accent that is somehow the entire Northeast of the United United States. <laughs> Accents are definitely not a strong suit for the entirety of this cast in the show. Um, I don't even want to get into uh, Pino and his accent changing from the mm. voicemail to the next scene to the next scene. But as far as this intro goes, we do it. I hate to give the show any form of credit whatsoever, but it does give us some decent exposition into. A very quick, like, this is who Jack Bourdain is. He once was on top of the world, and then he fell on hard times. Being a culinary show, though, you had to get Jack Bourdain's recipe for failure. Oh, (laughs) Oh, my God. You know, I was watching it, and I was like, Max is going to have something to say about this. (laughs) Yeah, because when you take... Raw talent. When you take... (laughs) Okay. And it's like, get the fuck out of here. Take one oh, part natural talent, two parts stellar education, mixed with easy success and a generous helping of booze, drugs, and women. Oh, and then the punch, when he punches like the, the restaurant manager or whatever, and there's like the aggressive fake punch noise. Oh, the Foley work on this is absolutely incredible. I mean, there, I, I think if there was, if you had to describe like the the position of Muppets having to do cocaine in a scene that is what the foxification of them doing cocaine really is they all come up at once like they were all just doing it together like snorting from the same like tr- big trough <laughs> do you want to see a version of this show where it's like a gritty kitchen drama with the Swedish chef now oh hell yeah I would watch the bear with the Swedish chef like a hundred times a uh, hundred times a day so the we're going yeah, we're gonna talk about recasting uh, Jack Bourdain maybe late, a little bit later, but I'm a hundred percent signed on for Swedish Chef Jack Bourdain. Um, after this introduction, you know, we get the Foley punch of a lifetime. Uh, we find that Jack is now working in a restaurant 
still keeping his high standards in maybe not the highest of standards place uh, in a familiar little Italy tourist trap. Um, this, this was the one part of the show where I actually like giggled genuinely for a second. I was like, oh, that's cute. Like, you know, I get that. That's cute. <laughs> I, I actually did have a nice hearty laugh at the waiter singing the word lasagna <laughs> uh, as, <laughs> as the Marriage of Figaro by Mozart. <laughs> they had to have, how many takes do you think they forced that poor actor to do of that? One. He's a natural. <laughs> <laughs> like Samuel L. Jackson. That, yeah, that was the one part where I was like, oh, this is cute. I could see this being a genuine thing that happens to like a fine dining chef who just still like food is so much in their soul. It doesn't matter where or what they're doing. But, but they like, make him look like such a pretentious asshole. Like yeah. he's talking about rigatoni being a noble pasta. It's like, oh, shut up. That's the one thing that I find very interesting. Like if we look at Darren Starr and his career as a writer, right? And we look at like a show like Sex in the City or we look at 90210. One of the things he does so well is write to make a character, no matter what lifestyle they come from, someone you root for, even if they're a terrible person. Carrie Bradshaw is a terrible human being. We'll get into that in the Sex and the City <laughs> episode. Um, so the um, thing that I was just shocked with, with Jack is obviously our protagonist. I do want to see him fail. Like I'm sort of starting this show thinking like, I want to see Jack Bourdain fall flat on his face. The only time we see him have any sort of a soft spot or anything where you would be like, oh, he did change, is like the last two minutes of the show, mm-hmm. which I, I'm sure we're not getting to yet. But like, yeah, they don't do the thing where it's like, but he's actually got a heart of, like, you don't see him volunteering at a soup kitchen because he also loves food. Like, he's just like, I still hate where I am. (laughs) Nothing will make me happy, even success. And like in the most early 2000s move, we see a white guy who's down on his luck fail up and uh, have a, we'll learn that his resume was submitted to the hot new restaurant Nolita that is in the need for an executive chef. Who doesn't have a chef two days before they open. Doesn't have a kitchen staff. Like, they haven't been prepping food for months and months and months and building this menu. That, Max, tell me if you feel this way, because I was thinking that even just, like, work, from working at a place. And, uh, <laughs> like a and I was like, this is the dumbest thing. I, that immediately pulled me out of the show. I was like, there's no fucking way that could have ever existed in the world of food in fucking 1950 or 19. 19- <laughs> I I know you need an inciting incident to get the action going here, but there's something about you have no food, no staff, you have 300 of the books, and you reopen in less than 48 hours. Like, what? Like, oh god, they did the Marvel joke. What's that? Like, you must be some kind of suicide squad. Like, (laughs) (laughs) they did the they did the friggin' Marvel joke. They did the oh you you I have to do X Y and Z in under three minutes. Where do I sign up? I was going to call this Kitchen Ocean Eleven, but oh I think God. the Marvel joke is great. Those are, well, those are Terry hold, Benedict's hold casinos. Hold that thought for like 60 seconds, Jeff. Because once we get to Nolita... Yeah, once oh, we... Oh, this is the most cool, beautiful restaurant I've ever seen. Mama, it is six tables with folded napkins. <laughs> I... I was like, this. there's no shot they're saying this for real. 
They didn't yeah. turn any one of those napkins into a swan. I know. Well, we do get to know Lita. We do get to see those six tables uh, that some poor PA had to put out, and they definitely <laughs> folded those napkins. But we do get to meet the man whose voice changed from a voicemail to in-person named Pino. Uh, and Max, were you making me wait for a certain actor whom plays Pino? I mean, we, we could talk about Frank Legella, um, legend of stage and screen and also played Skeletor in the 1980s He-Man movie. Um, yes. By the way, talking about the Bradley Cooper getting three straight Oscar nominations, like Frank Langella is going to get an Oscar nomination like two or three years after this show for Frost Nixon. So like, again, people like who were on this show go out to do great things. I'm rooting for you, John Francis Daly, the next few years. Um, but I was going to talk about one of my favorite tropes <laughs> in all of film and TV. Oh, is it the is it the team assembly? We got to put a crew together. <laughs> yes! <laughs> I've never seen this in a TV show before that wasn't like blatantly making fun of that premise. So like when you called this like Kitchen Ocean's Eleven, I'm like, yes, yes, we got to get a crew. We got to get a crew. Let's do this. Yeah, like the, it's really, talking about a show that does a really good job of making fun of this, I couldn't help but think of the uh, Rick and Morty, you son of a bitch, I'm in. Yep, and just time. like, because he was just selling every single person on like these make-believe benefits like i have never worked in a restaurant but when he was just like oh yeah we have dental i was like hell no you don't have dental <laughs> like some corporate like businesses don't even give dental well and if the whole thing of like good writing is show don't tell there's literally a character who goes to jack like how are you gonna do that like tell us jack <laughs> i had an itch that was scratched but it was like joey plates extraordinaire thief like in the typewriter font i was like i kind of live yeah. so let's <laughs> let's break let's break down the crew so yeah first i, we I meet, was just we about to say Seth. Yeah, so we meet Seth, played by Nicholas Brendan, who is our pastry chef. But also, if you're not familiar with that name, he was one of the leads in Buffy, just very casually here. We meet Teddy. We meet Teddy Wu, seafood genius. Yeah, played by John Cho. Oh, uh, John Cho. Which is just absolutely absurd. Uh, then we get to meet Owain Yeoman. I hope I pronounced that right. Because I think it's Owen. I think Owen? it's like, I think it's like North Owen Irish. Yeoman. Yeah, Owen. Yeah, it's Owen Yeoman. <laughs> oh, oh, Owen Yeoman, who is Stephen, who's our sous chef, but also a kleptomaniac and possibly still very addicted to most forms of drugs, as well as a sex addict. Uh, uh, you may know him as in 2004 playing Lysander, the captain of the Trojan army in Troy. Yeah, which wow. is just wild. Um, but then we get to meet two other characters after this crew is assembled with a bunch of lies. Uh, and false promises we get to meet Mimi um, that is not a typo uh, Mimi is something that someone chose when they were writing the script to name a character that's played by Bonnie Somerville whom you might know from NYPD Blue she also was in the OC as well as Jamie King yeah she's she's episode. Rachel who tries to seduce uh, Sandy Cohen in season one. Oh man oh. the threads the threads they're threading Everything's connected in the TV pilot's license universe. Um, but we meet one other character. Uh, we meet Jim, played by John Francis Daly, whom I know from Bones, uh, from quite a long run on Bones as well. Like, this cast is insane. 
He's he's like a, a real life. What's the hell's the character's name from Ratatouille? He's like he's very much he's <laughs> he's that guy. Uh, what, what is oh, this? Linguini. Linguini. Yes. Thank yes. You. Yes. Thank you. Our pasta expert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he's he's in waiting, which comes out. Yeah. Which comes out three yeah. weeks after this pilot three airs. Which so John Francis Daly spent like an entire year in just fake kitchen sets. Man, this guy's <laughs> big back of house energy. After we meet the entire crew, um, we get the idea that like, hey, there's some good joke, or I don't want to even say good. There are some jokes about like, <laughs> oh, let's call this guy. He, basically, we're going to haze him. John Francis Daly is just going to be the pledge. Like, Darren Star, I don't know if he was in a fraternity, but boy, did he give off the vibes of this show was written by a frat bro. <laughs> it was weird, though. Like, it, it was such a poorly written and, like, executed character. Yeah. Like, I, for whoever has worked in restaurants, like, you don't just become a sous chef because you know where the fucking onions are. Like, <laughs> he's, like, dropping the onions and, like, begging for his job, but he's a sous chef. Yeah, it's like pretty high title. It's it's definitely just extremely odd. Um, but as soon as we get this crew together, we're magically transported to the first day. So we lose a day completely. The <laughs> we menu... only had 48 hours, Jeff. We're running out of time. We are running out of time, but everything there we're is... We're going to need a crew. Zero training is happening. Zero menu preparation is zero. happening. Food is happening also. I don't know if you guys noticed this in the kitchen. There's like a plate with something on it. <laughs> there was a line at one point where uh, John Francis Daly's character, Jim, is like, I was working on that for 30 minutes. And I was like, no shot in hell were you working at in a major restaurant for 30 minutes on a single dish. You got to get those fire types down, boy. We got to get these plates <laughs> cranking. Uh, he was also working on writing happy birthday on a plate. I don't know if you guys caught that. He's from that Utah, and I don't know if Utah people can spell. There's a pastry chef extraordinaire, and why is one of the prep cooks doing the chocolate writing? I, <laughs> I have so many questions. Max and Irene is both, uh, people who have both written on cakes uh, professionally. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, if we were in the back writing happy birthday for 30 minutes, we would have been absolutely fired. <laughs> as soon as we get through the crew assembly, we are in the first day. Um, we're told by um, the character of Steven that we have to go and talk to the front of house staff. Um, during this... We are introduced to Tanya, who is our hostess. Mimi is there, very disappointed that she has no say in who the chef is. We also get an um, appearance from one of my favorite character actors, Sam Pancake, just appears. Sam um, Pancake. And playing a for maybe the one and only time in his career, a straight man, but God bless him. Um, and uh, that no, man erotically put a breadstick in his mouth and talked about how hot. Can we he thought talk Jack about Bourdain that breadstick a little bit? Because it yes. looks oh, like it's a soft breadstick. And then I thing chipped. In the world. I chipped three of my teeth watching that scene. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he goes as which. To be fair, I did very much vibe with Sam Pancake when Bradley Cooper's yelling and he's like, "I think I love him." Yeah. I was like. Now that's exactly right. We all have the same trauma response. But let's talk about what got this trauma response. Um, Bradley Cooper decides to make a statement. Um, 
by going to the front of the house and introducing everyone to Greg. Um, Max, who's Greg? So Greg is a Patagonian toothfish, more commonly known by its hip rebranded name of Chilean sea bass, because no one was ever going to eat a Patagonian toothfish, but you could charge thirty to forty dollars a plate for Chilean sea bass. Yeah, I, this is probably the one time of the entire episode where I'm like, okay, I really like Jack's character because he is emphasizing the importance of the insane logistics that took this uh, this fish from Chile out to New York. And, and how important it is to, like, make sure it's top quality when it gets to the table. Because, like, I don't know, food waste is a massive problem in the U.S. What's bonkers, though, in that segment, that. though, is Jack is breaking down the literal seconds of each portion of the dish and how tight and intricate everything is from prep to plate to table. Yet we saw people, like, dicking around taking 30 minutes to do dishes merely minutes ago. So, like, it feels... It, it feels like Jack is on his shit. Like, it's one of those moments where you're like, okay, I actually do believe this guy is good at his job and he is accomplished as a chef, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily buy it from the other people around him. And that makes it a little bit confusing to me. Yeah, it definitely, it's it's almost the reverse fish out of water concept of what we've been seeing where there's... Well, yeah, he's holding the fish. Yeah, Jeff. no, that's, that's very God true. <laughs> you're just on your A game today. Three, three food puns in. We're I, we're not even halfway through the episode yet, <laughs> uh, but I, I it is so interesting to see this person who seems so high regarded as a chef and so on point as a chef. We see him do zero cooking. Uh, we see him describe food beautifully, um, very similar. Like that was the only part where I really connected to. Like, oh yeah. Anthony Bourdain maybe had something to do with this pilot mm-hmm. because the he way he mostly just looks hot and quotes Top Gun. I mean, so does Anthony Bourdain, R.I.P. <laughs> but like in all senses of the word, this was the he only had moment. The need for speed in a different way, though. Mm-hmm. There we go. Oh, That's... it's an addiction joke. Yeah. Oh God. Uh, I'm so sorry, audience and sponsors. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> as soon as um, we're done with this Greg monologue, that was definitely how Bradley. Cut- Cooper got this role. Um, we are then brought to um, seeing our hostess Tanya um, get a phone call as she is booking a reservation for Daisy Miller. I will say, and I'm not somebody who like brings this up often because I don't think I'm educated enough on like feminism to dive in. But the way that Tanya is portrayed in this show oh boy is so egregiously terrible i know i know let let it's three like, men jump in on this subject too yeah. <laughs> it was it was like awful as as a woman who's been a host it's just like it was it made me mad how accurate it was when the like when the customers were interacting with her oh my god that scene <laughs> made me roll her. dumb as a rock and i was like i don't think that was super necessary yeah unfortunately she's portrayed as this sort of like ditzy blonde the way that she like butts in and interrupts jack's speech throughout the monologue with like thinking she's got this like gold star pop quiz answer the way we see 
customers treat her, interact with her, um, and even at the end, like her relationship, like the way the other chefs uh, perceive her. Unfortunately, with this show, you get a real boys club dynamic in the kitchen and some real negative, uh, like comedic tropes and stereotypes towards the front of house staff mainly who are women and like queer men, mm -hmm. uh, which definitely dates the show's comedy a good deal. Yeah, it's just that thing of like, it did, I think the interaction with the men that we see in a few minutes, like when they're talking to her, I think that's literally spot on, unfortunately. But like the, the dumbness of her, which probably sounds dumb of me to say it that way, but like, just like how stupid she is in this show is like that was so unnecessary like she could have been like any other hostess i've ever worked with who's just like cute and nice and friendly and good at their job yeah and uh, then also get hit on it's a real shame because it appears now we only watched the pilot here and thank god in the case of this show it appears that the writers of this show were like oh all of the wit the only woman or female character on the show who could be smart is mimi that's that's it. Everyone else, <laughs> everyone else, dumb as a rock. And Sus, and, and, and Sus is definitely like yeah. You know, Sus is definitely either dumb and nice or mean and hot and like that. It's it or mean and smart. Like those are the but everybody. Yeah, mean. everyone in this show is pretty attractive. So I was about yeah, to say, yeah, yeah. Irene, like please. Uh, no, no, no. You're, everyone has to be hot, but you're either dumb and nice or mean and smart. Um, uh, I mean, this is Darren Starr's culinary underbelly. You must be hot. You have to be. Every chef is very, very attractive. How um, soon after? How soon after uh, was this from Mean Girls? Because she reminds me so much of how Amanda Seyfried's character was written. Oh my Girls. gosh! Yeah, that's so true. I don't like. I don't know what's like acceptable in like the cultural landscape of this, but I I feel like. It, that character would definitely it, it not be. It was not out of, like, it didn't surprise me for as soon as I saw her. I was like, she's the dumb one. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was an idiot. It's so interesting because we brought up how Waiting came out three weeks after this show premiered. One of the big differences I found in this show, and, like, I recently watched Waiting, like, a couple months ago. And Waiting did such a good job in writing its every character mm -hmm. having some form of edge and being realistic. And you the concept the Dane Cook vehicle two months ago. Well, Dane Cook's only in that movie for like twenty minutes maximum, so I was pretty pleased by that. It's more it's of a Ryan that's heavy Re screen time. It's more of Daddy Ryan Reynolds. That's movie that's to me. more time than Heath Ledger's Joker gets in The Dark Knight. <laughs> <laughs> but going to the the point of why I would talk about a Dane Cook vehicle is because I think that one of the things that that show does, as well as like we talked about The Bear a little bit. Is that show both of those shows as and slash movies give edge to every single character, give three dimensional um, depth to every single character. And this show, when it comes to the female characters, just decided, nah, we're good. We're gonna just move on and let's not focus on the food. But we did mention one of the I hate to say it's like smart characters, but with Mimi, you do get the first real obstacle to Jack, who has somehow followed his way up to this point. He's gotten the gig. He's back on his feet. He got his crew. And now we finally have someone who's maybe standing in his way does not think he's always cracked up to be. And, and, and something, call me crazy. Do I sense a little bit of sexual tension between the two of them? If we, if we were to 
maybe watch a couple more episodes, would they somehow fall in love miraculously? I think there was sexual tension between him and Greg the Patagonian Toothfish. He has literally, he wants to fuck every single person on the show. He has more chemistry with Greg the Patagonian Toothfish than any other character in this show, including his girlfriend, Suze. We'll get to Suze in a little bit because she's definitely an MVP of this episode. Um... Let's quickly just get to the dinner service because Jesus Christ, what a mess. Um, we do find out, um, I would hate to go a little bit out of order, but Biddy Schramm, uh, whom you might know from Monk, plays uh, Reese Ryder, a.k.a. Daisy Miller. Um, There's a more important Biddy Schramm role that I will not let us go without discussing. No, there sure isn't. More important apart than Monk, with not, being, this, not on this podcast. Apart with being Sharona in Monk, Biddy Schramm is also on the receiving end of one of the most iconic lines in 90s cinema. Because she plays Evelyn in A League of Their Own, who Tom Hanks exclaims at, There's no crying, There's no crying, in, crying baseball. in baseball! Oh my god. Wow. I love That's her amazing. so much. She's been in like, everything I love. So we find out that Bradley Cooper character jack bourdain cheated on reese Ryder, and he begs her not to come to the restaurant we can it, with her sister and he very blatantly said he's like sorry i nailed your sister <laughs> i don't know why he's going to that again. yeah now we have hallmark cards for that <laughs> um so we find out jack really doesn't want reese to come reese insists that she has to do her job and be uh semi you know Semi-partial. On opening night! What food critic is coming on opening night? A one that's not looking to give a good review, I guess? I don't know. What what restaurant isn't having, like, a soft open, a friends and family... It's so... I have to just, like, resign myself that this is not like a real restaurant, but it's still just so annoying. I know you have to raise the stakes for entertainment value, but this whole, like, we only have 48 hours that creates so many flaws in how a restaurant of this caliber and, like, investment portfolio actually operates. How did they get that fish 3,000 miles away there in 48 hours? Just in general. How did they get it there? Magic. The magic of cocaine. Um, so, so we've been talking a lot about the idea of the opening night. Um, let's dive into it a little bit because there was a lot that goes on. One, it starts off in the idea that they have these 300 reservations, but the restaurant looks fairly empty for the most part. And also, how did Reese Ryder get a reservation to a restaurant that there are 300 reservations already booked uh, for that opening night. That's a logistics question I'll never be able to answer. Uh, But the kitchen is popping. Um, It looks like everyone is doing pretty decently at their job, but we have to invite some form of chaos into this episode, which includes a couple of different options. Um, Should we start off with the concept of a thumb or where Reese is sitting? (laughs) Oh, let's start off with Reese at the host stand and her little log jam with Mimi. I mean, I sort of feel for Mimi. I think Mimi, like, nailed it as a ho- as a hostess in that single bit. She's like, wow, that's actually so funny. That's not your name. So I think it's just an example, though, of, like, because, you know, Mimi is portrayed as mean. So she has to have her comeuppance. And in this example, it's because she doesn't listen to Jack. She's not aware of 
Reese's pseudonym, and so she doesn't know like what she's looking for on the reservations book. And if she was actually communicating with her team, she would have known who to look for. But because she's so headstrong and hates Jack so much, she didn't take that time, and it ends up backfiring on her. I always feel for hostesses. I think they have a really unfortunate job of just being bearers of bad news, especially in today's restaurant climate, where like it is impossible to get seated at some of these really nice restaurants without knowing someone who works there. Um, and she does a hell of a job being like, oh, I will seat you. Um, but it's going to be right next to the women's, was it the women's or the men's restroom? Um, a place yeah. where you're famously allowed to put tables. That's the, I was like, <laughs> never, there's sometimes a table like near the restroom. There's not one in the stall practically. You never get hit by the door at no. your table. No, it's like a three stooges like joke that they just like yeah. held on to for 60 years. And they, yeah, they also like cut back to it. Was it like four or five times that she gets hit with the door? We're like, <laughs> Someone thought that joke was really funny. <laughs> it was Anthony Bourdain, actually. He was like, I'm not doing this show unless you hit her with the chair three times. <laughs> the rule of threes and repetition are so important in comedy, and that really was proven during Kitchen Confidential. But during this, we do get that scene with Tanya where, once again, feel for the hostesses. And, like, I think the show did a really, I'm going to say it, the show did a really good job of showing what hostesses deal with. Um, so I would not be surprised if someone who worked in the writer's room was like, let's show the trials and tribulations of a hostess. Well, it does, it does two things. It, it does exploit, uh, not, not exploit, it does, uh, like demonstrate the exploitation that like women in hospitality are subjected to, but it also does create an accurate picture of what happens when the dominoes start to go a little awry in restaurant service, mm. because, Tanya's getting backed up by this table that is making sexual advances on her. So tables can't get sat. So they're all going to be ordering their food at the same time. And it's going to start to back up the kitchen, which leads to some real chaos on Jack's end that we see. I, I fully agree. Like as somebody who's worked in front, like and back of house situations, that's you put it so beautifully, Max. Like it, it shows how shitty it is to be a woman in that kind of world sometimes, but also just like, everyone's there to get their job done regardless of if they're super passionate about it like jack or if they're kind of just there to have a job like tanya probably but like it's all important in in the domino line of how it works and the other thing i thought that they actually did portray pretty well granted like with a little extra like cavalierness on top of it but like when the thing does happen that we're about to get to he he acts like I think any real chef would like, okay, like let's keep going. Like it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty accurate too. I, I would hate, I'd be very remorseful if I did not mention that food safety is a really important thing in restaurants. <laughs> um, and our sous chef decides to put some veal down his pants as he talks about it way too romantically. Yeah. Um, and we never see it go down the pants, but we know it went down the pants, and that's enough for us. There's some poor, like, network censor at Fox is like, all right, you can say the veal went down his pants, but you can't show the veal down the pants. <laughs> um, so as we are going through and, like, hearing see, hearing and seeing Stephen... Um, Steven starts to haze, uh, Jim, our little naive, uh, Utah boy, 
Um, would you say he was lighting a fire under his ass? Oh, God. would I? Boom. Talk about Foley work. <laughs> the blowtorch sounded like a blowtorch that was used during a world war. Um, <laughs> it, it was so powerful, yet so small at the same time. Yeah, that was a Geneva Convention uh, uh, law-breaking uh, creme brulee torch. <laughs> and during this misfit and during this hazing, um, Stephen does get his muppins and he proceeds to lose the tip of his thumb wait hold on what word did you just <laughs> come up i think i think you added an extra word a letter in there you, were you saying crumb uppins because we're talking about food or was it a misdeed? i think i said kermuppins which is still incorrect <laughs> which is it which is come uppins for kermit the frog yes oh yes <laughs> Oh. Okay, God. I, I thought I, I was like, did I miss the joke? Okay, I'm sorry uh, to be Jeff did not joke. get the two part stellar education from Jack's monologue. <laughs> um, hey, sorry. Gets his comeuppance. Yes, so Stephen gets his comeuppance. I think I pronounced it correctly that time. Uh, thank you, Mom and Dad, for that stellar education. I, I do use it most of the time. Um, and. The kitchen, as we said, just continues. Um, we do have to find the tip of the thumb, uh, but they do... And where does that end up? It, it does end up in a dish that does go out. So we get this chaotic moment um, where they pull... Pull all the yeah, plates. Yeah, pull all the plates. And Mimi doesn't understand why to pull all the plates, so she proceeds to bring the single plate that hasn't been examined out, which just happens to be going out over to our food critic, who then... Oh, how could it not? That's good. That's just good writing. Yeah. And then, rather than... It was it was such a missed opportunity, because, like, she brings it over, she places it, she sees the thumb, rather than, like, trying to have her avoid seeing the thumb and, like, having conversation, they're just like, oh, let's do the slapstick thing of just grabbing the entire piece of sea bass with the thumb in one foul swoop, and then leaving the restaurant. I truly, I mean, I, I have a I have a weird thing for body horror in any TV show, but this one really made me, like, pretty ill, I would say, <laughs> just from the, the spurting of blood, which was, uh, I don't know, I would say $2 special really effects. Red acrylic paint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, uh, I immediately uh, uh, spurting on Jim, who uh, can't even say anything even remotely close to, to a cuss word, I think was uh, a perfect fainting spell moment from a TV show that could have aired 70 years ago. Yeah, it it was just, we needed, as we've been saying, there needs to be a problem, there needs to be something that sort of piques the interest of the audience, and this one just sort of fell flat. It was fairly easily solved, um, and after it's solved, we see Jack getting changed, um, a very drunk woman uh, who's coming from her bachelorette party, mm -hmm. um, decides to, um, you know, put one last thing in her mouth, as she <laughs> said. I, I don't know how that got past networks. That was amazing. I don't, I don't know how somebody wrote it. I don't know how somebody wrote it, but it also made me mad because I knew it was coming. I was like, let's hear it. Let's hear what she's going to say. It, I know it's coming. It was the one line in this show that did make me sort of be like, oh, there you go, Darren Star. I missed you so much. I mean, uh, 
this is a this is a network. Uh, I think Fox and and when this came out, uh, they're probably their largest amount of money was spent on a American Idol, and then B Family Guy because those two have to be like the. I mean, family putting that much money behind Family Guy and really riding that out is like your this is our premier like original programming thing. Uh, I'm I think this was pretty tame, but also like this probably aired 7 p.m. Thursday night or something like that. This is not the crowd for it. It was so it was so bad, and then it was the like the very classic like it's not what it looks like. It's not what it looks like. (laughs) It was. Yeah, and not only do they do the joke once, but remember, repetition in comedy is key. So they do it twice, <laughs> uh, and Jack's girlfriend back back, baby. sees it. And also, I thought that was actually another pretty funny line. Like, Sue's saying, you're too dumb to come up with a story like that, so I believe you, uh, was actually like, it was... Can we talk about Suze for a minute? Suze is the star of this pilot, even though she's in it for like two minutes. And I really, uh, Andrea Parker, who I know from Pretty Little Liars and Desperate Housewives, literally just destroyed her time on the show, even though it was like two minutes of screen time. Can we find out about what she did at the end? I very, I was like, my heart was sort of touched. I was like, oh, we've all had something like that happen where we like don't want the best person. I think she crushed it too. Yeah, she's the one person who's really in Jack's corner. And I I will say one of the very textbook effective pilot writing things you get with this scene in the locker room is like you give Jack that like all is lost moment. You watch his professional careers, second chance, seemingly going down the drain with everything that's gone wrong in the kitchen. Uh, You see his personal life seemingly going down the drain with Suze walking in on him and this drunk uh, bachelorette. And then we just like hard cut to like the end of the night, end of service winding down, which I I believe is the same night. They're not very clear on it. Yeah, they definitely make it seem like he's had a hard night. He's changing into his civvies uh, and then is set to go on his way. Into his what? His, his civilian <laughs> clothing. His civilian clothing. Oh, you know. Thank you for your service. Good day, show. sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got it, Jeff. Oh well, thank you so much, Irene. I'm glad that uh, I'm getting my kermuppins. Um Now, as far <laughs> as uh, we go through, um, we do get uh, Reese Ryder's review of the restaurant. And the fastest review to ever be published. Was it in a newspaper? It was in a a newspaper. Pino comes out with a newspaper. newspaper. Yeah, at at fucking whatever. It was two in the morning. Yeah, Yeah. the the advanced copy, of course. It's almost like... No editing at this newspaper. It's almost like when with the Super Bowl, where after they win, they have the team who won on the Super Bowl. (laughs) They have the photo and they give the players the newspapers. It's like the New York Times had two different editions. They had one with a good review for Nolita <laughs> and one for a bad review of Nolita. And Pino comes out and proceeds to give Mimi sort of the business by saying, "Hey, front of house got a really bad review. Um, they were fully blamed um, for this being a bad experience." But then the food got a great review. Jack is ready to celebrate. Um, he's invited out with the crew. And then he does the like, yeah, 
I am ready to celebrate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Jack is a changed man. Uh, And we go to, you know, the end of the pilot where he goes to return to his girlfriend, Suze, who has decided to leave him because she thinks she can predict the future and that Jack will fall into his old ways, but she hopes he does not. Um, And that sort of ends the pilot as a whole. Well, we do get one last button joke in the credits of Stephen doing whippets in the kitchen, but (laughs) for all intents and purposes, Susan's letter ends the episode. Look, as a whippets expert, (laughs) (laughs) he was just eating whipped cream. I I immediately thought, whoa, is someone about to do whippets on national television? And I was disappointed. (laughs) Again, the sense at Fox, you can apply he's been doing nitrous in the kitchen, but you cannot show it. I the the note that she left actually like I hate that this show made me feel any real emotions but I was I I was like I've wanted the best for somebody and had to leave like that sucks and she did the I know you you alluded to it before Jeff but the like the resume thing and like it was cute yeah it was it was just like it was a very sweet note that did not belong in this show um, Absolutely correct. Yeah. yeah, I also was a little upset that this kind of implied that we wouldn't hear from Suze ever again for the rest of the show. We can <laughs> so definitely like, okay, find her in un. Best. Yeah, we can find her in unnamed a little Italy restaurant number five. Uh, <laughs> Suze has the best emotional arc in this episode, and she's like sixth on the call sheet here because she's the one where it's like she goes from the boss to learning that she's actually the girlfriend to her pushing him out to know Lita and eventually like leaving him so he can fulfill his potential. Cause of course the show has to end with a white man fulfilling his potential. Yeah. Uh, but she, she has a better arc than anyone else. And yet we're saying goodbye to her, which sucks. <laughs> I, I do want to talk about things that we loved. And I talked a little bit about how I think Suze is the best character in this pilot. That is not about Suze. Um, what were some other things that y'all loved about this show? You know, it did come out in 2005. I think we mentioned that. Was there anything else that happened in 2005 that might have affected this show? <laughs> Max. <laughs> He's been wanting to talk so... about this <laughs> since he found us out. <laughs> so we, we'll get into this a little bit more in the legacy section, but the show aired its first three episodes on Fox, and then it went on a hiatus so Fox could oh, broadcast the world. For, for Major League Baseball, for them to air the World Series, which was the year that Rich Inman's Chicago White Sox won the World <laughs> Series. So this show went on a break so Rich could watch his hometown childhood team win a World Series. I was going to say, that could, I, I was wondering if that meant at some point when I was 14 years old that I had watched Kitchen Confidential. <laughs> You've at least watched ads for it. Oh my god, um, yeah. I think my favorite... Thing is how hard this show tries to use 70s rock and roll to make Jack seem edgy without giving him any actual edge. Like, the pilot episode is named for a Rolling Stones album. Uh, he doesn't come we up see at him all. At, we, it never comes up. There's no Stones music in this episode. There's, like, no budget for music supervision. Uh, we see him walking around his house in a... Jo- uh, 
uh, a CBGB. Yeah, I was about t-shirt. to say the CBGB T-shirt just was like, oh, I, yeah, I started to say Jod because CBGB closes a year after this show airs, and it's now a Jod Varvado store. Oh, no. So it's just like there's all of Bradley these things Cooper, that try to make. They try to give him this like Anthony Bourdain rock and roll Lower East Side energy, but they don't actually do anything. Uh, they're trying to, but they're failing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very. It's really interesting seeing what this show went out to try to accomplish and what it ended up accomplishing. Was there anything else that you guys really, like, we didn't talk about it, but you loved about this show? The dead silence is a giveaway. (laughs) (laughs) I liked how many women drank Cosmopolitans, so you knew that Darren Star was involved. (laughs) It's his his calling card. It's like the Pharrell beat at the the beginning of his songs. Yeah, a four count, yeah. (laughs) It it was just, it was like so, so 2005. Yeah. Which I, I do appreciate, like, the time capsule nature of it. Let's talk about things that made us maybe tilt our heads and... (laughs) In our notes, I just have, is this the horniest network show ever made? Discuss. <laughs> we, we have covered two Stephen Levinson HBO comedies in Entourage and Ballers. And this show would make Vinny Chase and Spencer Strasmore blush red in the cheeks. One of those shows had a lot of nudity in the pilot, and I still think this is hornier than that show. <laughs> Oh, when Sam Pancake comes in and he's like, there's a table of overly drunk women and then there's a beat and then they all try to run to the table yeah, like there's not. Joke? They gave their server their underwear. <laughs> yeah, I, I I mean, we have covered the only other possible answer that I could have for uh, is this the horniest network show ever made. And Father of the Pride is easily one of the ones that are up, that's up there because the entire plot is around is John Goodman's tiger character going to fuck? <laughs> Are they finally going to fuck the, the entire most pilot network episode. pilots? Even everybody loves Raymond. Half of Raymond is like, is Raymond going to fuck tonight? Uh, but there's there's a line at the end of this too. We mentioned Jack turning down the party to go home and celebrate in his own way, but he gets invited out by Stephen, and the line that Stephen pitches him to go party is. Tanya and Chloe, who I don't think we've met Chloe at this point, are going to hang out at their place with their friends who are models and who frequently naked. It's it's just insane. Like, what Fox allowed to be shown or allowed to be written, um, all in the sense of, hey, this is Anthony Bourdain's, like, based off of Kitchen Confidentials. We want to promote that rock star chef lifestyle. It just all seems really in vain. Um, because it doesn't really hit that well. Is there anything else that really, when you saw this show, uh, that made you take pause? Wait a minute. Did I really just hear what I heard or saw what I saw? Um, obviously, my favorite joke of the entire episode. The, when you slip up, I'm going to be there to take your picture. And then he yells, cheese. And then Jim brings him cheese. <laughs> that was, I, I did, I did chuckle. I was pretty happy about that. <laughs> Why did they do that? It was hard. It was true. And like, I'm, I love TV. I love suspending reality. I love not being in my own thoughts. But like, it was so hard to accept that like, this kitchen doesn't have a, st- and I know I keep harping on this. 
there's just no way that this kitchen didn't have a staff and didn't have anything and like didn't have any food like it, it was it was basically it an was empty old like, navy for for most of this yeah it was just so like two-dimensional in the in the world of just like this literally couldn't have happened ever it takes restaurants months and months and months and months and months to open and they always get pushed off and like they just i think if they had even explained like a little it would have been better but it was like i just don't think this is the vibe yeah but irene then we wouldn't have gotten the crew montage (laughs) well here's here's another thing that i just want to you know sprinkle in there this show came out in 2005 Fox had another cooking show come out in May of 2005. Can anyone guess what that show is? Wait, on Fox? On Fox. Wait, is it uh, is it Hell's Kitchen? Hell's Kitchen premiered Yo. in 2005 in May. And that show literally is only about opening nights, basically. So <laughs> how the hell... Did they not even just give Gordon Ramsay a call <laughs> saying, hey, do you want to get an EP credit and just come on the set and yell at people I, for us? I don't understand how you have someone like that on your network's payroll and you do not have any sort of culinary consulting on this show. We don't see a culinary skill more advanced than chopping. And even that involves someone's and, thumb and getting Bradley cut Cooper off. Bradley Cooper is chopping chives with two knives in the beginning. Yeah. I don't know if anyone noticed that. Yeah. So, but he has two knives. <laughs> I, do want to talk, I do want to talk about Bradley Cooper's post-Kitchen Confidential kitchen career because he was in a little movie called Burnt, which is basically also Kitchen Confidential that no one saw. But during the process of preparing for that film, he was quoted in saying, I shucked a million oysters just to be able to prepare for that, which one is a gigantic waste of oysters. Mm-hmm. But two, there's no way that per- that human being chucked a million oysters at all. Um, but God bless him for the fact that he tried a little bit harder for something even fewer people saw. Um, let's, <laughs> we have so many questions about this uh, po- this pilot, but you know, there's some other folks who have some questions and. Let's go into our in-flight calls. And we have a question here uh, from a viewer that I'm going to play for us right now. Hey, guys. Longtime listener and friend of the pod, Michelle, here. Super pumped about Kitchen Confidential. But I have one question for you. We saw a young Bradley Cooper play our Anthony Bourdain-esque character. But I want to know from the group if you could select any actor, living or dead, to play Emerald Lagasse in a pilot, who would it be? <laughs> oh, that's so good. So thank you to Michelle for that amazing question. I have no less than three answers for this question, but I want everyone here to give me whom they think should be a great character to play or a great actor to play Emerald Lagasse. Uh, I'm going to step up and go first. Uh, I need to see James Gandolfini do it. And it's not just because he's a heavy set guy, but I think that would just be like an absolute perfect turnaround from The Sopranos to to play a fucking uh, extremely jovial uh, Cajun chef. To piggyback off of Riches, I'm also going to choose a Sopranos cast yes. member, um, Michael Imperioli. Yes, I think oh. would be sensei. <laughs> Incredible. God, I'm over here looking up how tall is Emerald Lagasse trying to figure out. (laughs) 
So while Max is trying to figure that out, Gandolfini was one of my choices yeah, instantaneously. But I have two others that I would be remiss not to say. One is Paul Giamatti. I think Ooh. Paul Giamatti would absolutely kill. Paulie. But also, we have to go for an Italian man that is close to my heart. And we already sort of mentioned him on the show. Tony Shalhoub, I think, would be a great Emerald Legacy. Uh, there's something quite, you know, uh, charming about him as an actor. And I think that he would nail it, especially if we tried giving him a little bit of a Cajun accent. We just can't stop dropping Monk references. I think, I think, call me crazy. <laughs> Deal. But Go I ahead. think... I think Danny DeVito would be fun to see. Oh my god, yes. (laughs) Because he's just so obsessed with wanting to be a chef, much like Bradley Cooper, I feel like Jon Favreau thinks that this is his (laughs) shot at Academy Award. Oh, you got it. Oh, you got it. (laughs) Damn, damn, that's really good. That's really, really good. Um, So... We also got a couple other uh, questions. If you do want to leave us a voicemail, uh, we'll make sure to leave that number at the end of the show. But we got a couple of questions, a couple DMs on Instagram uh, from our dear friend, John. And John asked us if this show would be better if we cast The Rock as (laughs) Jack Bourdain. Uh, And in addition, he also asked us if we don't cast The Rock as Jack Bourdain, whom would we cast as Jack Bourdain? Absolutely better with The Rock, because you could keep having physical comedy bits of him being too big for the kitchen line. I like to imagine that at some point there is a studio executive who wanted nothing more than to make a like slapstick multicam sitcom called like What the Rock is Cooking, mm-hmm. where he plays like a short order cook at a small town diner. Um, if no one has, I'm going to write it. <laughs> And is there anyone else that you would want to possibly cast for this role? Maybe someone who's more recent, maybe someone during 2005 who was living the dream. Yeah, who looks like he chain smokes I a have lot? One. I had to look up his name, but I think John C. McGinley would actually kind oh, of Oh, that's a really him. good choice. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I was trying to just think of tall actors and from like people who were big in this time. Literally. Uh, Clive Owen is the first person who came to mind for me. Um, Bourdain's a big dude. He's actually 6'4". So yeah, Clive Bourdain was six four. was 6'4", which is super intimidating. Yeah. Um, big, big and the other person who came to mind, if he were to slim down a little that. bit for the role, would be Lee Pace as Anthony Bourdain. Ooh. So I'm gonna give one other Wedding Crashers cast member who I think would nail this, and that is Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn, I think, yeah. would be great in this role. Uh, <laughs> talk about a tall boy who also was hot. Talk about them tall boys. Talk about them tall boys, who was also super hot in 2005. I'm also going to throw down Ted Danson if we were looking for an older person to play this oh, role. Oh, that's good. I, like that. I, I could definitely see Ted Danson absolutely nailing this. Well, so uh, thank, cheer, cheers to that answer. Thanks to uh, John and Michelle for those awesome questions. Um, as we start to uh, descend... Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the legacy of this show. So, this show only had four episodes air. Um, There were a total of 13 of them that were created. You can purchase all 13 of those on Amazon via DVD. We watched this episode via 
a different service, and you can go and try to find it if you dare. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're not condoning anything of this nature, but if you were to type in Kitchen Confidential Pilot into a search bar, you you might find it pretty easily. Or Kitchen Confidential Full Series Download. I think that's all of them are all of them are fine. I think in the nature of of Bradley Cooper being forced to wear a CBGB shirt, uh, I think he would tell you to pirate some stuff. So let's talk a little bit more about the legacy of the show. So this show has something in common with a lot of failed pilots and a lot of failed TV shows that we've watched, which it was shown out of order. Uh, the most popular episode was episode number four, uh, which featured a French chef. And that was actually episode number nine. If you watch the DVD, we talked a yeah we talked a little bit about the White Sox uh, being a major interrupting factor to this show's uh, success in the 2005 World Series. But any other legacy facts that uh, anyone else might have? I will say, well, let's not blame the White Sox too much because they only lost one game the entire playoffs. So <laughs> they tried to get this over with so we can get back to Kitchen Confidential like immediately. The, the thing is, the World Series ends and they still take like another eight weeks off from Kitchen Confidential where apparently they just showed reruns of Prison Break in its place. <laughs> like they're sitting on all these episodes and they're just choosing not to. But I think it's actually very funny in terms of TV history that this show and Arrested Development were canceled on the exact same day by Fox. Yes, and they both have the same exact legacy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And same quality. Yeah, I'd watch a Kitchen Confidential reboot on Netflix for sure. (laughs) Well, we already know who's Well, I think that leads us to our next question, Jeff. (laughs) Yeah, that does lead us to our next question. But before we get to that question, Rich, it's time for everyone's favorite segment, (laughs) Rich's game of the week and ding, ding, i will ding, give ding, you the ding, mic ding. it's the crazy frog all right uh <laughs> all right it's a very very short game of the week this time uh in the last couple of weeks i have been telling people to spot the fake but we're also still going to, we're going to spot the real in this list but it's going to be a very short list um it is a little gross so uh i'm going to give a little bit of a trigger warning for body horror um which of these instances are real of people finding a human appendage in their food uh number one uh a man found a tip of a finger in a cole's frozen custard and didn't realize it until after it was in his mouth and took all of the ice cream off thinking it was a piece of candy uh number two a las vegas woman found a human finger in her wendy's chili uh, number three, a six-layer burrito. What? A woman in Canton, Ohio, found a human earlobe in her five-layer burrito at Taco Bell. <laughs> what, what, which one of the three do you think is, is real? It's it's B. It's the second one. The chili? What do we got? Yeah. I, I, I thought the chili story was a fraud, so I'm going to say earlobe in the burrito. Um, I'm going to also go with the chili. Wow, all three of you are wrong. It was what? the finger in the frozen custard. Max, that you... was the grossest one! I know, I know, and that was the one I gave the most detail about. <laughs> so, the so Max, you were absolutely right. The human finger in the Wendy's chili was fake. Uh, a woman uh, essentially put her husband's like already amputated finger in there to try to sue Wendy's to get money. And then she ended up uh, costing Wendy's from that story, from that story of her planting that in the chili uh, cost the company $2.5 million and she did jail time for it. That's amazing. (laughs) 
And then you just wanted to make a really funny I pun. wanted to make the six-layer burrito joke so bad. Six-layer <laughs> <laughs> burrito? What? Um, well, thank you for that game, uh, Rich. I do want to go to that question, though. Do we think this pilot could be made today? And if so, what would need to change about it? Or where do you think you would find it? I think the show itself physically could be made today. We touched on the bear up top and how they are sort of similar in these like redemption arcs of Mm -hmm. people in the culinary world. I think food media is so hot right now that a version of this could be made today. I do not think that this version could be made today for all of the uh, sexism, uh, mild racism we see when he's in the kitchen with Teddy, Mm -hmm. uh, just the negative tropes throughout it. But I do think that Kitchen Confidential in some way, shape, or form could exist in 2022. I fully agree. I think that if it was like completely rewritten and the vibe of it was completely reformed, it would be a fun show to watch. I loved The Bear. Mm -hmm. Loved it. And like, I think if it was a legit, like telling of the story of a high, like fine dining restaurant that the chef drops out at the last minute and they have to fill it with somebody be it somebody who was a well like world-renowned chef that fell from grace like i think that'd be a great show to watch but i definitely like don't need jim in it you know yeah yeah i i have to agree with you on that one i i think there's for as i love the book kitchen confidential if someone tried to make an adaptation of that book into another tv show i'd watch it but every single show that i've seen including the movie chef the movie chef is also a like a uh, white chef male redemption arc uh, story, which is like, you know, how many times are we going to see that in, in that particular type of media? But um, if they try to change it up and make it a little bit more about like maybe exposing the the dirtier secrets of the of the kitchen industry, I think that would probably be better. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you, Rich. Um, I think that I do truly love Kitchen Confidential, the book. If there was a network or a streaming platform that said we're gonna do it true to the book um then Mm -hmm. we would absolutely do so uh and i would absolutely be tuned in for the first episode with that being said would you continue watching this version (laughs) of the show (laughs) i am afraid not because i think suze is gone what about you, Max? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think Suze is coming back. And I did check IMDb. Reese Riders only in this one episode. <laughs> I, I I cannot recommend diving into more of this show's run, especially when it would probably require me to buy a full series of it on Amazon. <laughs> and Irene, round us out. No. <laughs> um, and I will be sure to say... So, fun fact about this show, it took me an hour to watch this 26-minute pilot, given (laughs) the uh, platform that we chose to watch it on. But if you choose to go against all of our advice (laughs) and uh, watch this, you can find some of the other episodes on YouTube. So, do as you dare. Fully Uh, out of order. With that being said, as we begin to land this plane um where can we find all of y'all um 
Irene, where can we find you? You can find me at Homemade by Irene on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Um, and you can find my YouTube channel at Irene Walton. That's my little baby. I'm really proud of everything on there. Um, but yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Oh, I think, uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> And also, can you can find me uh, sitting at the end of the bar at Nolita, sipping a Cosmopolitan. Wow. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Maxwell Singh. Uh, and you can find me at uh, Damn That's Rich on Instagram. You can find Max and my comedy on uh, TikTok at Dadwagon Comedy. And just to further plug Irene, you can find her web series Dead Dad's Kitchen as well as Bites of History. Uh, and you can find me at Run Jeff Run on Instagram and Twitter. You can find the TV Pilots License on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at TV Pilots License. If you have a question about the show or for our next episode, you can email us at tvpilotslicense at gmail.com or give us a call at 213-290-1713. And make sure to watch out for our Instagram for a sneak preview of some of our upcoming episodes. With the plane landed and the seatbelt sign off, we look forward to flying the bright skies of the TV world with you. Thanks again to Irene for joining us. And until then, stay safe and have a great day.